This episode of The Dig, like every episode of The Dig, is produced in partnership with Jacobin Magazine. Jacobin is an incredible publication, and you've probably seen a lot of what they've published online. But they also have a really beautiful print magazine. It comes out quarterly and has well over 100 pages packed with illustrations, infographics, and some of the best graphic design in the country. Dig listeners can join 50,000 Jacobin subscribers developing socialist political thought and debate for just $15 a year. $15 gets you an entire year of Jacobin in print and access to the magazine's entire back catalog. If you've never subscribed to Jacobin before, you can access this deal by going to bit.ly slash digjacobin all lowercase. That's bit.ly slash digjacobin, B-I-T dot L-Y, digjacobin, all lowercase. Welcome to The Dig, a podcast from Jacobin Magazine. My name is Daniel Denver, and I'm broadcasting from Providence, Rhode Island, Attacking evolutionary biology is critical for the religious rights project of social reaction. Attacking climate science is essential for capitalism's protection of fossil fuel industry profits. Attacking public health science is now essential work in Trump's insane fantasy to make America normal again as workers are forced back to the job and off unemployment. But science is not an inherently progressive enterprise. The way that science is done and utilized has also been essential for American capitalism and empire, from the geologists helping to drill deep water oil wells to the $10 billion Defense Department contract awarded to Microsoft but sought by Amazon, which claims that it was slighted due to Trump's anti-Bezos bias. Poor Jeff Bezos. Science will, we hope, find a coronavirus vaccine. But the political economic conditions within which science in general and vaccine research in particular is done under capitalism means that helpful research that could have been done in the past wasn't, and that if a new vaccine is discovered, it could very well be subject to the demands of profit and nationalism and thus made inaccessible to many who need it. The late radical scientific luminary Richard Levins described the dynamic well. Science, he argued, has a dual nature. He described the concept like so, quote, On the one hand, it really does enlighten us about our interactions with the rest of the world, producing understanding and guiding our actions. We really have learned a great deal about the circulation of the blood, the geography of species, the folding of proteins, and the folding of continents. We can read the fossil record of a billion years ago, reconstruct the animals and climates of the past and the chemical compositions of the galaxies, trace the molecular pathways of neurotransmitters and the odor trails of ants. And we can invent tools that will be useful long after the theories that spawned them have become quaint footnotes in the history of knowledge. On the other hand, as a product of human activity, science reflects the conditions of its production and the viewpoints of its producers or owners. 
the agenda of science, the recruitment and training of some, and the exclusion of others from being scientists, the strategies of research, the physical instruments of investigation, the intellectual framework in which problems are formulated and results interpreted, the criteria for a successful solution to a problem, and the conditions of application of scientific results are all very much a product of the history of the sciences and associated technologies and of the societies that form and own them. The pattern of knowledge and ignorance in science is not dictated by nature, but is structured by interest and belief. We easily impose our own social experiences onto the lives of baboons, our understanding of orderliness in business, implying a hierarchy of controllers and controlled, onto the regulation of ecosystems and nervous systems. Theories supported by mega-libraries of data, often are systematically and dogmatically obfuscating. Levins was a founding member of Science for the People, an organization of radical scientists guided by Marxism, founded in 1969 that put out a magazine of the same name until 1989. Today's episode begins with my shorter interview with Frank Rosenthal, one of the original members of Science for the People in the early 70s. Then, I have a longer discussion with Nafis Hassan, a postdoctoral researcher at Tufts University, working on brain tumors and an organizer with the Boston chapters of DSA and Science for the People. We discuss almost everything I could think about about the current politics of science, and it was fascinating. Before we get rolling, this podcast is a listener-supported operation. We also, of course, depend on incredible publishers like Verso and Haymarket, whose ads you hear twice each episode. But the bulk of our funding comes from you, our listeners, who support us at patreon.com slash the dig. That is what allows me to do this as a full-time job and to pay all the people who help make this show happen each week. We are also, as you might know, spending a bunch of money right now on an incredible three-part narrative series on the life and politics of COVID, which you will be hearing soon. And we are also facilitating listeners in organizing DIG book clubs, which you should join if you're interested. This Sunday, we are having our first monthly all-book clubs meeting on Zoom with Kim Phillips-Fine to discuss her book, Fear City. You can find out how to join or start a club at thedigradio.com, but Anyhow, we can only do all of this because you, our listeners, support us. We also send you a left-wing book or books in the mail if you contribute at least $10 a month. If you are a dedicated listener with a steady source of income who can afford to contribute but you haven't done so yet, take a moment to navigate your web browser to patreon.com slash the dig. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash the dig. I also want to let you know how you can subscribe to Science for the People. Each issue of Science for the People is run by a different editorial collective with a different angle on how science and scientists shape politics. For example, the issue Science Under Occupation has stories from Palestine to the Philippines to Kashmir helping us ask what role has science played in occupation and the struggle against it. How do people develop and adapt science to resist human and environmental exploitation? Their next issues 
are fighting for a people's Green New Deal and biopolitics, and they focus respectively on climate justice and the fight against biological determinism. Science for the People recently dropped their price for a one-year subscription from $45 a month to $29 a month because they are moving to a PDF-only publication so that they can keep paying contributors through the pandemic. But they're still printing and distributing their next issue, Science Under Occupation. And if you subscribe by May 21st, your subscription will start with a print copy of that issue. Subscribe at magazine.scienceforthepeople.org slash subscribe. That's magazine.scienceforthepeople.org slash subscribe. One last thing before we get going, I would like to thank Alyssa Battistoni and Simon Torcinta for providing an enormous amount of very helpful help in preparing for this interview. Okay, here's Frank Rosenthal with an interview that is brief, at least in dig time, on the history of science for the people. Originally trained in experimental physics, Frank Rosenthal spent over 40 years doing research and teaching in environmental and occupational health sciences. He was one of the original members of Science for the People in the early 70s and is active with relaunching the organization today. Frank Rosenthal, welcome to The Dig. Great to be here, Dan. In the 1960s and 70s, when Science for the People and a left science movement was emerging. The left was focused on critiquing science for being embedded within these systems of violence and domination, an order that emerged out of World War II, corporate capitalism and the military-industrial complex, which at the time were both uh, at the heart of the Vietnam War and mutually assured nuclear destruction and this broader system of mid-20th century exploitation. But Science for the People was also critical on more fundamental matters of objectivity and expertise. Today, the politics of all that have shifted to some degree. We have what often seems like a left liberal popular front in defense of science against right-wing attacks on climate science and now with COVID attacks on, on public health science too. But before we get into to these historical changes, let's start with laying out the politics of science as it was in the era when science for the people first emerged. Frank, who were the radicalized scientists who founded the group? And what was their critique of the scientific establishment at the time? So it, it's hard to underestimate the role of the Vietnam War in all the social movements that were uh, growing uh, at the time that science for the people was uh, science for the people originated. The initial movers behind the the movement that created science for the people, it went through a couple of name changes before it became science for the people, were physics students who were concerned, troubled, outraged about the use of science in the Vietnam War. MIT was a center of this. So the, the sort of one of the founding events of Science for the People was a 
moratorium on research at MIT. Uh, it was called the March 4th moratorium, where science, mostly grad students, maybe a few faculty, uh, walked out of their labs and said, you know, we are going to stop doing our research to point out this research, not necessarily their own personal research, but that research in general was being used for oppressive purposes. That period was a, a blossoming of so many uh, different social movements. And uh, the, the science students were part of that whole uh, social revolution, if you, if you uh, if, as it were. Uh, so you had the women's movement, the civil rights movement, which came before, but was then morphing into the black power movement. The environmental movement was was very big. That was one of my motivations in addition to the uh, Vietnam War uh, of becoming an activist. So you had all these different uh, activist movements going on, which, and at the same time, you had a new left thinking that was starting to tie these things together in terms of analysis of society and looking at capitalism as a major force in creating all these problems and, and looking at socialism and communism as a solution to the problems. What, sociologically speaking, accounts for the radicalization of scientists in the 60s and 70s? Is it just a subset of the larger story of new left radicalization? Or was there something particular about the position of scientists, especially young scientists at the time? I'm not a sociologist, but, uh, you know, I guess in sociology, you think of the, the persons, the individual's status or position in the society and how that affects their decisions. Uh, obviously, the, the science students were exposed to all the same forces that all the other young people were exposed to. You know, they were, all, they were young people listening to rock music and reading uh, underground uh, newspapers and all this sort of stuff. But, you know, the, I guess one thing about the science students in particular, they, they tended to be a little bit uh, out of that mainstream. It was always, you know, sort of the campuses, it was the more liberal arts uh, students, philosophy students and stuff who were into the politics. Uh, but, you know, th there was a feeling of alienation of, you know, those of us who were in science, I was in physics, of sort of being in your little science world and uh, not being a part of all those really cool things that were going on in, in society. So uh, getting involved in politics was one way to connect, I think. Yeah, certainly. I want, I want to talk more about that, about science for the people's analysis. And can you explain how this dual nature concretely manifests itself in the world and how this insight, this notion that, that science has this, this dual nature, how that might guide left thinking and action in terms of the politics of science. Can, can I connect this, before we get to that, can I connect this up to something uh, that you were asking about previously, of which course. is interesting, interesting to me is, you know, what issues or, or subjects uh, uh, did science for the people take up? You know, I, I said that we originally came into this mostly as 
physics students and physicists who were protesting uh, war research. But now you're talking about uh, something uh, beyond, way beyond that. You're talking about the ideology of science. You're talking about biodeterminism. So, and, and the, the things that Nafis is talking about happened pretty early in, in, the, in the history of science for the people. So, so it didn't take very long for the initial impetus of confronting the system over uh, the use of uh, war research to attract or to involve other people involved in other aspects of science and, and starting to really uh, introspect on, on what is science and, and how does it work and, and why do we find ourselves in this situation where this thing that we, we love so much that we want to devote our lives to is being used for all these uh, oppressive purposes. So I just thought that was a nice connection between how we started and, and, uh, and where we ended up. As a bi-monthly magazine and, and chapter organization throughout the 70s and 80s, the original Science for the People had a much bigger impact than its numbers might have suggested. Most notably, the organization sustained this decades-long polemic against the militarization of American academic life on the one hand, and also these resurgent theories of biological determinism. Can you talk about a bit about how, how this relatively small political formation was able to exercise so much influence, including influencing a, a generation of, of some pretty prominent scientists like Ruth Hubbard, Stephen Jay Gould, Richard Lewontin? We, we did have an impact in, in terms of certainly media attention, our activities of science for the people, particularly our activities at the meetings of the uh, AAAS, the American Association for the Advancement of Science. Uh, these were covered in, in the pages of Science Magazine. Probably the, the, the science journal or magazine with the largest circulation in the world. So that's that's no small thing. So, you know, one, one could fairly say that people in, in scientific, many people in scientific fields uh, knew, uh, at least knew that science for the people existed. In terms of the larger impact in society, I, I'm not sure how to measure that. But I, I think one thing to think about if if we did have an impact and and I think maybe has meaning for today as well is that the forums where scientific issues are discussed uh whether it be uh, in terms of the pandemic that we're facing now or environmental issues or uh, renewable energy you know those forums where where scientists gather and discuss and debate how uh, to apply science to society. That, that gets a lot of attention in our society. So, and, and I think that was part of our intention as part of the anti-war movement, that we saw that we had access to a forum that would have uh, a channel of communication with the American people. Uh, and of course, uh, it, it's... There's a class nature to that. It, you know, those uh, forums 
were not well uh, noticed by, or should I say they were more noticed by people in the uh, middle class, professional class than other uh, classes. But you got to remember that those people are, are, are movers and shakers in society. And so uh, reaching them was, I think, significant. What were the debates like about how to approach the scientific establishment? I know in the earliest period, there was a lot of disruption of events at, at major science conferences, but maybe then the scientific establishment moved to create a little space for science for the people, which I imagine then prompted all sorts of concerns about being co-opted by the scientific establishment. How did how did you all navigate that? I guess there was an issue of an organization like the AAAS. Are they uh, an, an ally or an adversary? To, to be honest, we didn't think that much about it. We we, we put them in, in the adversary camp. Uh, <laughs> uh, looking back now, the, the, we could have been a little more nuanced uh, about that. I, I'm not sure how much it affected our, our political effectiveness. I think it affected it some. Okay, well, so what adversarial looked like then, and, and it wasn't only us that was part of the adversary, although I guess we were provoking it by certain things we did, which we felt were necessary. But it uh, it looked like going into a session uh, at the AAAS meeting and taking it over and, and starting to make comments and, and raise questions from the audience and, and not stopping. So we would be able to uh, have no business as usual. And uh, we, we had sessions that we uh, basically reorganized. We didn't really shut them down completely, although some people walked out. But uh, sometimes we would end up uh, just being uh, adamant and persistent in our questions, uh, you know, not waiting till the question, the official question period, for example. Uh, sometimes we actually took over the podium and, and then called on the original speakers for their input into a democratized uh, session. Adversary also looked like several of us getting arrested in Washington, D.C. for refusing to part uh, from a literature table that we had set up in the hotel lobby. And uh, I was one of uh, five or six people that were rather crudely apprehended and dragged uh, away to end our uh, our impudence at uh, setting up a literature table when, when, we, when it was in violation of some... Uh, hotel or rule or other. It, it also looked like spelling AAAS as A-A-A dollar sign. You know, sort of a combination of, uh, you know, you, uh, like it's uh, said sometimes, you, you, you would have to been there to appreciate it in terms of those times, but it was sort of a combination of humor and guerrilla theater and, and political struggle uh, and more along serious themes. Definitely a, a theater aspect to it. How do you see leftist scientists today, including in the, the kind of refounded science for the people, maintaining this sort of independence and 
militancy, given that the context right now, the dominant politics of science, as pe- as as I think it's conventionally understood, is this sort of liberal versus conservative war between yes science or no science, science versus anti-science. How, given your experience back then, how do you how do you see the left approaching this current dynamic right now? So the the thing that's that's different is the, the overall political times are, are different in, in that we don't have the, the social movements, uh, the, the the strength of the social movements today that we had back then. I, I don't think some of our confrontational tactics would work uh, now in the same way that they worked uh, back then. Because then they were an extension of a, of a broader confrontation. Yeah, they were an extension of a broader social movement that was going on. And our actions, even if they were uh, sometimes crude and, and not always phrased exactly right, they, they would resonate with not only with numbers of people, but w- within uh, social uh, structures, organizational structures. In terms of the scientists, I, I actually don't see a huge difference. I mean, you had liberal scientists and reactionary scientists then. You, you have liberal scientists and reactionary scientists now. The, the issue of anti-science is, is a little more in the forefront now than it was then. But it, I don't know how how that makes really much of a difference. I mean, if anything, it, it's a it makes a I think it makes a positive difference in terms of uh, organizing among scientists. You know, science, science for the people, uh, it's always been a question then and, and, and now. Who, who are we organizing? Are we organizing scientists? Or are we organizing to uh, make waves in society about science? Obviously, it's both. The organizing of scientists is maybe a little slower uh, or maybe a lot slower these days because of the lack of those social movements. I mean, in those days, many uh, scientists themselves were caught up in the anti-war movement in a way that that scientists, you know, scientists, I I think, and we're making stereotypes and generalizations, but, uh, you know, if I I can do that, I I would say the the default position is to stay out of politics and just do your work and 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 have fun or have success or whatever you have uh, doing it and and of course to to do science well takes a tremendous amount of focus and work and uh you know there there's plenty to keep you occupied kind of a hard sell in a way to get scientists involved in politics and it's an e- a little bit of an easier sell to these days uh Scientists, they, they see their uh, work threatened. The things that they like to do and give value to their uh, and fulfillment in their life, uh, you know, potentially being taken away from them. So a, a follow-up question on this is these sorts of monstrous attacks on the, these, these really intense attacks on, high, on science that we see from Trump, I get why they politicize scientists, but they might only minimally serve to to push scientists into a a liberal 
politics of protecting science against right-wing reaction. What, what accounts for the new wave of young left-wing scientists who've sort of resurrected science for the people in in the last couple of years because the the organization stopped publishing stopped publishing in in 1989 and it seems more or less self-evident why any left project was falling apart at that time but 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 why do you think that science for the people has has reemerged now history a social justice oriented history professor at Amherst put together a conference on science for the people sort of then and now but mostly uh then you know in terms of looking at the history and uh i guess there was a certain chemistry between the the older uh and the professor who organized this made a special point of involving the the original members of science for the people that's how she actually got interested in in uh and the subject through her contacts with some of the original members of Science for the People. You know, maybe just sort of thinking out loud here is this uh, alienation uh, idea, you know, that uh, so it, it, back in those days, uh, people were alienated uh, because of a lot because of the war. Uh, today, maybe science and technical people are alienated because of uh, feeling that they're just kind of cogs in a, in a machine, that they're uh, grinding out uh, new tech applications and, and helping uh, drug companies uh, market new drugs. And maybe, it's, and it was just, but it's the same back then, you know, the, the alienation uh, just uh, takes a different form. Well, Frank Rosenthal, thank you very much. Well, thank you, Dan. Good luck to you in uh, putting this together. And uh, I appreciate your interest in this uh, important aspect of our movement. Frank Rosenthal spent over 40 years doing research and teaching in environmental and occupational health sciences. He was one of the original members of Science for the People in the early 70s, and today is active in relaunching it. Next up, Nafis Hassan, a postdoctoral researcher at Tufts University working on brain tumors, and an organizer with the Boston chapters of DSA and Science for the People. Nafis Hassan, welcome to The Dig. Thank you for having me. I want to talk, start by talking about Science for the People's analysis. One important leader from the original era of Science for the People and an important scholar, Richard Levins, mm -hmm. talked about what he called the dual nature of science, which Frank summarized like so recently. Quote, on the one hand... Scientific investigations discover truths about material reality that are independent of ideology or politics. On the other hand, the practice of science is a human endeavor, deeply embedded in the social and political system, which determines what subjects are investigated, why they are investigated, who investigates them, and for what purposes the results are put. Beyond that, 
In many cases, the dominant ideology of the political system often influences how the results of scientific investigations are framed, conceptualized, and communicated. Because of this, science does not exist as a pure entity that is neutral and objective with respect to public policy. So to start out, explain this dual nature of science, how it concretely manifests itself in the world, and what, what that has meant both for left wing the left-wing scientists who originally founded Science for the People and those of you who have refounded it today. Let me let me start by saying that you know there is there's this uh, work we do in the labs, and then obviously the other side is the process of um, the production of knowledge and also how it's um, you know used in society, right? So I think one way to look at it is you uncover uh, some data, and then the interpretation of the data is not value neutral. It's definitely based on your political ideology or your implicit biases or the scientific processes carried out. And I think Richard Levins and Richard Blumstein, who wrote the book, The Dialectical Biologist, they, there's a chapter in there called The Commoditization, Commoditization of Science. And the first line there is the modern science is a product of capitalism. So, and this is you can see the concrete manifestations of such capitalism's effects on the uh, production of scientific knowledge in um, like all around you, essentially, because, you know, when and, and a very good example is what drugs are produced. Right. So uh, antibiotics is a really good example where, you know, because there is a lack of profit motive or antibiotics are not very profitable. There isn't a lot of interest in research for antibiotics or development of new novel antibiotics till you hit like a pandemic like this one. I mean, this pandemic is viral, but I hope it conveys the same idea. Similarly, you know, a in, back in the early 90s, there was a lot of pharmaceutical companies leaving vaccine research because vaccines were just not profitable. And by the time it was like 2002 or 2003, there were only four major pharmaceutical companies left in the vaccine world in the US in vaccine production, right? So. Again, the research and development of novel vaccines or even the production of vaccines was entirely dependent on market forces. And this also affected what research was being funded, right? At that time, there was a lot of shifting of government federal uh, government funding towards understanding more profitable, quote-unquote, profitable diseases, such as chronic diseases like diabetes or um, heart conditions, which would... Uh, which are chronic conditions, but you also need to take uh, medication for it for a long time. And so that is essentially, you know, that would provide a cash crop, if you want to say, for a pharmaceutical company. Uh, so that's just like one part of it, right? And then, then obviously there is the, there are other aspects of science, for example, military technology or the military industrial complex uh, and the research associated with it. Uh, there's also something I like to call the cancer industrial complex, where similarly with other kinds of drugs, cancer drugs are also sort of produced in a manner which requires the patients to be um, dependent on them on their life. And of course, you know, cancer is it's a it's a very uh, difficult disease. It's actually considered a collection of diseases at this point right now. Uh, so I mean, so it does I hope that kind of shows the dual nature of science. And so. For left-wing scientists, I think the uh, the founders, the Richard Levins was part of a group called the uh, Sociobiology Study Group. And at that time, there was a lot of work around 
you know, social behavior and biology, right? I mean, that's why E.O. Wilson coined the term sociobiology. Can you explain social human behaviors uh, using biological um, evidence? And so all of this went into, and a lot of it was basically, you know, biological determinism, where they were trying to use genetics to prove that some communities or some ethnicities were inferior to others, right? And uh, they were bringing in some aspects, like even aspects of phrenology. Um, so Charles Myers' book, The Bell Curve, is essentially a study of um, the differences in IQ between uh, races, essentially saying, you know, uh, Black people are have less IQ and it's because of their genes. Obviously, Stephen Jay Gould, who was a member of the sociobiology study group at that time, uh, he definitely uh, pushed back with his like really good book called The Mismeasure of Man, where he, you know, summarily rebuttaled Charles Murray's uh, claims and stuff. And so, you know, fast forward uh, to today when this, the revitalization of science for the people is happening at a time when there is a, there is a large polarization. You know, there is also like a growing anti-vaccine movement. Uh, there is uh, science has science is pretty much right now in the uh, grips of uh, capitalist ideology, and there has been steady neoliberalization of science. Also, on the production part, you know, we are also seeing like private universities or like sort of proletarianization of the what's uh, of scientists and they're being called the you know the biomedical workforce or the scientific workforce right and this includes grad students postdocs even tenured and uh, faculty who in the past had enjoyed a relatively secure position but are now increasingly facing a precarious future considering how much the uh, universities are operating in a neoliberal method, right? So grad student unionization efforts and also pushing back against uh, climate denialism or climate change denialism or anti-vaxxer movement, this is the new premise of, the, uh, of science for the people today. Levin suggests that this, this dual nature of science, if I read him correctly, suggests that the way that it means that the way that the left should approach science is through an imminent critique to, quote, point out both the external and internal aspects that limit science's ability to reach its stated goals. What does this approach, that an approach that surfaces science's contradictions in this way, allow us to see and to do? That imminent critique that you referred to, I think there's a really good piece uh, in the first issue of the Revitalized Science for the People magazine that came out last summer. Just a shameless plug, but uh, that sort of plug basically away. differentiates between what is a liberal critique versus what is a radical critique. And so, for the job of the left-wing scientist is to critique, provide a radical critique of what's wrong with the current system of production of scientific knowledge, and also how science is being used for nefarious purposes. For example, oh, and uh, of course, like how it differs from the liberal critique. So Helen Zhao, who wrote that piece, shows that. The liberal critique considers science or the scientific endeavor to be uh, good to begin with. And the anything that was bad was just uh, a glitch and, or, you know, just like one or two instances, right? For example, the Tuskegee syphilis experiment or even eugenics. A misapplication of an otherwise fundamentally sound and noble enterprise. Yes, exactly. However, the radical critique is showing that it's a systemic issue, that the science is not free from the political or socioeconomic conditions, and whoever wields the power 
also determines what science is being used for. And at the time when the Tuskegee syphilis experiment happened, there was obviously a lot of racial issues that we still see today, but it was a lot more pronounced at that time. And a lot of the study subjects were recruited without informed consent um, because they were black and they were uh, mostly undereducated at that time. So it's not just, and a lot of folks were complicit in that. And it didn't even stop in the US, right? So for example, once the Tuskegee syphilis experiment was um, ended and everything came out about it, it was discovered and there was so much uh, outrage. However, it just sort of shifted abroad. Like for example, the US government did do um, clinical trials abroad uh, without taking informed consent from the residents of those areas. And I think uh, it was either in, it was in India, there was some clinical trials also in Puerto Rico, I believe. So yeah, I mean, if, when you start stacking up the instances where science was used for quote unquote evil purposes or like purposes of undermining human rights, it just keeps adding up. And then I like, that's the issue. Like the radical critique is like this systemic issue will point out the systemic issue, which, you know, the liberal critique will try and, and uh, say that, oh, this is just, you know, one example, a one bad apple or something like that. The the original science for the people was certainly cognizant of of the dangers of right wing attacks on science, but a lot of their focus was understandably on the liberal scientific establishment and the way it served a core function within American capitalism and empire, particularly with the Vietnam War and the military industrial complex that was waging that war. But things have sort of changed in in recent decades with this incredible kind of liberal conservative partisan polarization around the very kind of basic questions of scientific truth and expertise. It's obviously not new. It goes back to the extremely long-running religious right attacks on the teaching of biological evolution. But then more recently, we've seen it really, really powerfully emerge with the industry-funded attacks on climate science, and now with with COVID and the, the constant misinformation that we're seeing in the subjection of, of public health expertise to the demands of, of capitalist profit and, and Trump's re-election prospects. How did science become a culture war issue pitting liberals versus conservatives? And, and what has that meant for the sort of left-wing critique and politics of science that Science for the People, both then and now, is advancing? Yeah, uh, that's a that's a pretty big question because I think uh, given the polarization, it's hard to be vocally critical about the problems within the science or the scientific community and the lack of political orientation there, while also defending you know the um, the need for uh, science, like you know the uh, the vaccine. Uh, the, if it comes down to vaccine, or like if you're trying to point out parse very uh, subtle differences between climate change models and stuff because anything can be weaponized at this point. Because there's this, this huge risk of, of leftists obviously have to defend science against the right, but how do you do that without re-reifying science? Exactly. And I think, in my, in my opinion, I would say, you know, since the 1980s, there's been like a steady like sterilization of politics, like the notion that science is a political uh, can have a political orientation or it's affected by politics has been steadily scrubbed off through uh, neoliberal policies or more and more uh, public-private interests emerging together. And if you look at, you know, 
how the universities themselves have become more and more private uh, or profit oriented, right? So essentially that has removed any sort of notion of politics. And I think from, from scientific uh, work, and this is clear when you look at movements like the March for Science, right? When, when March for Science happened, they... This was initially in uh, 2017. Yeah. So I actually worked with the in organizing uh, for the March for Science Boston in 2017, and it was it was great because you know this was suddenly there was a lot of uh, scientists just coming out and saying that this you know we are being attacked, like our funding is being cut, and it's like it's an attack on our lives, but also there are attacks on our work and what we deem to be um, verifiable truths, right? Because you know science, the scientific method is based on peer review where we critique each other's work, right? However, like along with that, there was also within the scientific community, there was this rise of this dissent, like why is politics being brought into it? Because when initially when the March for Science happened, it was meant to be, um, and I know this is an overused word, but uh, it was meant to be intersectional, right? It was not just about scientific work, but it was also about the rights of uh, immigrant scientists, the rights of women scientists, why aren't there more, and equal pay and more visibility or like, and, and to recognize the, the, the harassment that our, that our non-male colleagues face at the workplace, right? And obviously that was, became a big issue within the community itself. Like, why are these important, right? Like why we just want to keep the focus narrow and uh, why is identity politics coming into this? And the, the problem with that is that, you know, these are systemic problems. So when you, when you don't have a systemic when you don't have a critique, a radical critique of the systemic issues, that's when people can question these things like, oh, is it really necessary to talk about, you know, like how male or white male dominated culture of scientific research is, right? And obviously that's, um, that's being countered, but also at like a more liberal level rather than at a radical level. And then you also see stuff like believe science or I support science. But what does that mean? Like, if you follow the have... science, trust science. Yes, exactly. I mean, you know, in the book um, uh, "Margins of Doubt," Naomi Oreskes uh, show that it's the same data that was being produced that was used by the uh, the corporations, the fossil fuel industry, and their allies in the in the government uh, to to sort of not implement any harsh policies to fight climate change. Right. It's, it's the same set of data. Right. But there's this understanding. It's the interpret again, like the interpretation of data is what's uh, affected by your political ideology rather than the data itself. So when you just say I support science, you say, yeah, I support data. But then you're you're not saying which interpretation do you support? And when you have decades of such confusion, it's easy to see why it has become a culture war and why left-wing or radical scientists have to like straddle or like walk on such uh, shaky grounds. It seems to me that in part, it's the the very specialization, expert knowledge and training that scientists require. And, to, and, and perhaps that's just inherently necessary to the enterprise. We can get into that a bit later. But but that tied to the, the, re, the liberal reification of science, I think, has something to do with the horrible politics of science that that we have today, because the centralization of authoritative knowledge and expert hands will always provoke skepticism. And so we have anti-vaxxers who are now disturbingly and unsurprisingly playing a, a key role in spreading COVID 
disinformation and will certainly be leading a campaign to get people to convince people to not vaccinate if a covid vaccine is found. They they are democratizing science, too, in their own way. And it's and it's not good. (laughs) Um, So so is is the liberal injunction to simply trust science, believe science, follow science is the flip side of that. The right wing conspiracy theorizing against science are are both in a way the, the result of a, a general crisis in the relationship between scientific expertise and mass democratic politics? I Yeah, obviously. I think, you know, that's you're hitting the nail on the head. And, um, you know, when, when the March for Science, during that time, there was also this other idea. Then There was like a, I think it's a, it's a pack called uh, 314 Action, right? And there was this outpouring of support for scientists to run for political office at that time. But I think the issue is that, you know, for, and, and this is like, you know, obviously a problem with academic academia in general is like the concept of the ivory tower, right? So scientists, the image of a scientist is long removed from uh, society that he's like a, they are um, a member existing outside society in their lab. It's like a priesthood. Yes, almost. Yeah, actually. You know, uh, scientists talk trash about religion all the time, organize religion all the time, but some way or the other, we have ended up there. <laughs> but yeah, I think like what was key is that science communication is like a very important aspect of it. And the way it's communicated, it obviously, you know, it depends on the, the media that's running it. And for the most part, you know, 90% of science articles in the media are like trash, honestly. Like it's clickbait articles without any nuance, without any subtleties of understanding and and you know we we can go ahead and say oh journalists don't talk to us but it's also that scientists don't know how to talk to journalists as well and obviously there's you know other motives behind it saying that there are other motives like you know a university wants to is looking to patent a discovery so they would obviously put out like a press release that glorifies some aspects and undermines other aspects right and it's only when you go into the literature that you find that okay this drug or this discovery may not be as groundbreaking as it was made out to be, right? But those things get lost in the in the larger conversation. So to go back to your question, I think, you know, with the access of information that you have right now, it's very easy to point out or use the data that's out there to support your arguments, right? So liberals do that, anti-vaxxers do that as well, right? So there was a time when an ethyl mercury-based compound was being used in vaccine production. And that did cause some adverse effects. And and a lot of folks do use that study, right? But like, you know, that particular compound has been out of use in vaccine production for a long time. However, the the meme in an academic manner uh, still stayed within society. Like it never went out of people's minds, right? So there's these key aspects of information that stay with people and they just keep on using it. So in order to like fight those things, like you need to be able to you need to be able to understand that scientists are part of the society, that scientists also have the responsibility to be able to make science understandable to people. Yeah, so there's actually some good work being done around improving science communication. And there's like really great science journalists who are able to parse the subtleties of uh, discoveries and stuff. But there's still a long way to go. And there was a very depressing report in 2018, I think, which showed that increased communication or like education is not the issue here because people's beliefs are no anti-vaxxers tend to be 
well, well-educated, affluent white people. That is true, but they, you know, their base is also a lot of the times um, poor white people as well, or in some poor people yeah. as well, because you know, there's also like a political aspect to it, right? Like I, as far as I remember, you know, in Pakistan, the CIA had like a, an operation of giving out free polio, but they were also that was like a um, military operation as well, right? They used it to hunt down Bin Laden, and now people don't and. Now there's been a backlash against vaccination program in Pakistan. Exactly. And, you know, polio has not still been eradicated in that area. I mean, and, and if you if you understand, like, how basically pathogen uh, evolution works, that means if there's a vaccine or a treatment and if there in, in the concurrent time, there's also exist the, the bug is still there, then the chances that uh, resistant polio strains are going to come out are pretty, um, pretty high. Actually, I think. In Botswana, there's been cases of of a uh, uh, polio which are resistant uh, to this to this vaccine. So, yeah, I mean, you you know, like also the antibiotics resistance stuff is also pretty crazy. Um, so it's not not looking good out there because we uh, really kind of fucked it up. What's the right way to democratize science so that we can effectively fight anti-vaxxers? Because it seems like a lot of the medical establishment and public health establishment is trying to win the vaccine war by doubling down on the very cult of expertise. I, I'm not talking on any one in particular. This is just my general impression. Mm-hmm. The, the very cult of expertise that facilitates the anti-vaxxer movement's reaction in the first place. What's a different model? Yeah, that's a good question. I think personally, I feel that, you know, again, like I was saying that scientists, this this whole cult of expertise, right? Like, Whenever you see an expert, that immediately removes you from like the general population. And the more the more you are going to antagonize anti-vaxxers or like paint them as like idiots or stupid people or people out to kill us, I don't think that's going to really achieve anything. But like that's like the knee-jerk liberal reaction, right? Like a lot of people just imagine like why are these people not taking vaccines? It should be like easy as daylight. But I was saying is that, you know, beliefs about vaccination or, you know, evolution and stuff, these are very um, deeply rooted beliefs, right? And I think those are also tied together to uh, with the the believer's uh, material conditions. And I think that's where really it should be dealt with. And I think it also has to do with re-education. Like, it, it just can't be applied uh, separately. It has to be like a complete overhaul why the people wouldn't trust a government vaccination program has less to do with vac- uh, uh, the effectiveness of the vaccine and more to do with why people don't trust the government. I, I think, you know, that that would be my answer at the time, because it's it's less of like a, it's less of a problem of showing people data, but more of a problem of how do you, how do you uh, convince people that this is not actively harming them as so many other policies have done before. Listeners might be familiar with the problem of representing expertise in a certain way from the Twitter phenomenon of people, of historians uh, establishing their authority in tweets by beginning their tweets with the words historian here. <laughs> I don't know if you I don't know if you've seen that. <laughs> I don't, but I think I've seen that uh, similar things in climate Twitter. <laughs> yeah. Fill in the blank here. Uh, as a way to establish uh, authority in the Twitterverse and immediately repulse the very people you're trying to convince. Exactly. Um, and, yeah. Levin's had a really interesting, I've only read a little bit of his work, but he had a really interesting analysis of this very sort of 
alternative new age anti-science as individualist. And I found it really resonant. He wrote, quote, they too have class roots that lead some of them to separate individual from social causation. For instance, criticizing the magic bullets of the pharmaceutical industry, but peddling their own miraculous natural cures or promoting holistic cancer treatments, but ignoring the industrial origins of many cancers. The alternative communities are domains where insightful and radical critique mixes with petty and medium-scale entrepreneurship. He has another really smart analysis of the conservative anti-science framework. He writes, quote, Conservative critics reject the fragmented and reductionist aspects of modern science on behalf of a holistic, organic view of the world. At an aesthetic and emotional level, their holism partly resonates with that of radical criticism, but their holism is hierarchical and static, stressing harmony, balance, law and order, the ontological rightness of the way things are, were, or are imagined to have been. He continues, quote, Although its opposition to liberalism is opposition to the liberating aspects of that doctrine, the reactionary attack on liberalism often emphasizes the oppressive or ineffectual sides of liberalism. How do you see the—we've the, been talking about the relationship between the kind of liberal or scientific establishment and the anti-vaxxer movement. How, how do you see more generally the relationship between the liberal scientific establishment and conservative anti-science that, that Levins analyzes here? I have to give it to Levins. He, that man was so ahead of his times, but <laughs> yeah. also like he, um, he definitely read his history as well. I think that, you know, the, the holistic part, right? It, it is kind of strange that conservatives are more or were focused on the holistic aspects and rejected the reductionist aspect because the, the reductionist aspect of science was peddled as like the quote-unquote progressive science, that this was it. And I think that was a reactionary thing from the conservatives saying that I'm not going to buy this magic bullet thing and I'm going to move towards my holistic medicine. You know, science, as as uh, as we understand it, like Western science has really, at, at some point, you know, rejected or like, wholesale made fun of indigenous knowledge or other holistic practices that were not coming out of uh, the Western world. And which is really ironic because, you know, the treatment for malaria was definitely uh, generated from indigenous knowledge uh, from the bark of the tree and to give quinine. Even artemisinin, which is the which was the next generation of malaria drug, was also from a tree and also from indigenous knowledge. And even smallpox vaccination, Edward Jenner, yeah, he definitely did really good work in, you know, uh, doing a scientific study of smallpox vaccination. But it, before that, there was the idea of variolation that was derived from indigenous knowledge. So I think, you know, there's something to be said about the holistic knowledge that was rejected by Western science at some point. And so therefore, there was like a, a sort of like a reactionary mechanism in conservatives to sort of adopt something that quote-unquote, progressives had adopted. But also Christopher Codwell, who's like the British Marxist, had such a big insight on this. It's that it's it's the bourgeois philosophy that led the formation of a, uh, of a reductionist science and on the liberal science, which is what we see today. And so, again, you know, conservatives in politically conservative people believe that liberals are trying to 
brainwash them into doing things or you know trying to take over so it, it is a reactionary mechanism for them to deal with it and that's why they peddle what are pseudoscientific quote-unquote truths that you should be able to do holistic things and in reaction to that i mean if you said this is sort of like dialectical in a way liberals reject the conservative approach because they think that this is not grounded in facts and evidence and what they hold to be true so there's no point in taking that in which is interesting because you know palliative care uh definitely or even a holistic understanding of of a chronic or systemic disease for example cancer can go a long way it, it improves the quality of life in fact when you think about how cancer treatments are done majority of the cancer treatments or at least like you know the first generation of cancer treatments are all derived from weapons used in world war 1 and 2 so did not really make for great quality of life for the patients in fact a lot of them were basically if you it the, you know it, if it didn't kill you you barely survived it right so if cancer didn't kill you the treatment would and the treatment didn't then you are a survivor so more recently there's like understanding that palliative care is about increasing the quality of life of the patient rather than just trying to cure the disease and this is sort of coming full circle to understanding understanding that you know an organism you just cannot break it down into parts or remove it from the environment this is sarah jaffe and you are listening to the dig with daniel denver my favorite podcast for thoughtful discussions on the us left and beyond and you can support it on patreon.com this episode of the dig is brought to you by our listeners who support us at patreon.com and by Verso Books, which has loads of great left-wing titles, perfect for dig listeners like you. One that you might like is The Dispossessed, a story of asylum at the U.S.-Mexican border and beyond, by John Washington. The Dispossessed tells the story of a 24-year-old Salvadoran man, Arnovis, whose family's search for safety shows how the United States, in concert with other Western nations, has gutted asylum protections for the world's most vulnerable. Crisscrossing the border and Central America, John Washington traces one man's quest for asylum. Journalist and author Jeremy Scahill says of the dispossessed, quote, Offering expansive historical analysis of how ancient religions, cultures, and societies understood the imperative of welcoming the outsider, particularly those seeking safety from harm or death, and contrasting it with our current world order, Washington has written one of the most important books of our time on one of the most dire systematic injustices on our planet. The Dispossessed a Story of Asylum at the U.S.-Mexican Border and Beyond, by John Washington. Out now from Verso Books. In terms of that that question of the harm that reductionism does, I want to ask about to what degree is science currently and in, throughout recent history failing to explore and explain the broader ecological context of zoonotic infectious disease emergence, the emergence of infectious diseases like, like COVID-19, because there's all sorts of analysis that many of us on the left have read about in terms of the encroachment on forest lands and industrial agriculture, and we see nothing about that in the mainstream press that I've seen 
mm-hmm. beyond some discussions of pangolins or, you know, China shutting down wet markets. But right. but Le- Levin's in an article that I, th- I think might have been from 2000, uh, an article entitled, Is Capitalism a Disease? He wrote about how science had fundamentally misunderstood the nature of infectious disease and that by the 1970s that many scientists had believed that medical advances had tamed infectious disease and that the task of medicine would then be to just treat chronic illness and illnesses related to aging. And of course, we now know in the most painful way possible that that did not turn out to be true. And and he wrote, quote, so what was wrong with our epidemiological assumptions? We need to recognize the historical mindset in medicine and related sciences was dangerously and ideologically limited. Nearly all who engaged in public health prediction took too narrow a view, both geographically and temporally. Typically, they looked only at a century or two instead of the whole sweep of human history. Had they looked at a wider time frame, they would have recognized that diseases come and go when there are major changes in social relations, population, the kinds of food we eat, and land use. When we change our relations with nature, we also change epidemiology and the opportunities for infection. It's a brilliant article that I recommend people read and feels very relevant around, I think, 20 years after he wrote it. But let me repose Levin's question to you. What has been and continues to be wrong with prevailing epidemiological assumptions? Um, So I think part of what Levin has said still holds true. I think in the last couple of decades since he wrote the essay, which is, you know, I totally second that motion. You should definitely read it for the listeners. Uh, So we have come to the understanding that, yes, um, there is other determinants of health. For example, socioeconomic status is a big one that has been incorporated in the epidemiology. But I feel like we're still missing the point where we're not realizing that in a, within a system, how everything is connected. And, you know, James Lovelock had and Lynn Margulis uh, had proposed a hypothesis called the Gaia hypothesis, where, you know, the world itself is a big organism and everything is interconnected, right? And I mean, I don't, I, there's obviously good critiques of that sort of idea, but I think I just want to stress on the idea of interconnectedness, because when you read Levin's, right, like what he's saying is that there is he's stressing on the idea of co-evolution. And this goes back to the idea of dialectical biology, what he and Luantin wrote in their book, is that it's the organism and the environment co-determine each other. Like they act upon each other and they evolve together, right? So ultimately, the the current understanding of evolution is still one-sided. It's either the organism is acting on the environment or the environment is acting on the organism. So whenever we are studying these uh, zoonotic transmissions or disease uh, pathologies or how they arise, we're still not taking the whole picture into account. We're still studying only one side, whether it's the agent or the affected, right? So, and this is the problem is that we, a lot of the times we do not see the connection between human behavior 
and the consequences that are arising through from the environment for that. I mean, the whole wet market thing is definitely like a, you know, like a very Orientalist, xenophobic idea because current, actually it's being questioned whether or not it actually came from a bat, right? So, And initially there was widespread and total misinformation because, you know, Chinese people ate bats. That was like the initial yeah. kind of racist stereotype explanation. Yeah, I mean... It's it's really odd to me that, you know, people's dietary choices were made the, the first thing to blame at that point, considering how there's other esoteric things you eat in the United States as well. I mean, odd, but unsurprising from an anthropological perspective, because you are what you eat is is kind of true on a cultural interpretation right, right. level. People have strong associations between between food and identity and, and strange food as, as 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 marking kind of dangerous others. That 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 is definitely true. Anyway, so to go back to your sorry for that, you know, no, version no, there, no. but like the point I was trying to make is that I think Rob Wallace has a really good article in the Monthly Review showing how how the encroachment and it's one of the leftist articles you mentioned is that uh, that you're referring to is that um, how the encroachment of land through agribusiness is basically pushing uh, the boundaries between where humans reside versus where the uh, environment starts, right? So the the boundaries are pretty much blended at this point. And also Kim Moody has an article in Spectre Journal where he talks about how the virus traveled through what it calls like um, because of just-in-time capitalism, right? So you have these huge global supply chain network throughout the world where agricultural business or forestry business or logging, these are all sort of interconnected and when you look at the transmission data of, of COVID, you can see like a lot of these are people who are doing a lot of the transportation work, right? Like, so even within cities, you see subway workers or like bus drivers being affected at a lot higher rate, the postal workers, and then also long distance truckers are being affected, uh, infected at a higher rate. And this is, again, you know, going back to the whole idea of like interconnectedness at a human level. And when you look at the organism environment level, you're seeing the, uh, the coevolution and a good example of that, which Levins also refers to in that article, is that uh, the mosquito Aedes aegypti, which is responsible for carrying the dengue, which is the vector for dengue uh, fever, grows in stagnant water, right? So when you are building dams or when you, there's a lot of urban development, or even as recently showed, and this is uh, in Bangladesh, actually, where I'm from, and my brother has done some work on this, is that you see the window for the dengue fever is actually steadily increasing because of climate change, right? And I don't, I mean, there's, unless you're like a climate change denier, there's no doubt that human activity is causing climate crisis at this point. And as we're accelerating more towards that, these diseases are just like going to, the, the, the window of the endemics are going to um, increase as we're already seeing in Bangladesh for dengue fever. Um, and also sometimes it really scares me that what is uh, under the permafrost, right? Like there's old viruses lying under the permafrost which would melt and be released, unleashed on the world. And considering how the COVID-19 pandemic is being dealt with, that is a very scary prospect. I think something else that's exemplary of the harm that and the distortion caused by this reductionist anti-systemic sort of scientific perspective that we've been discussing is that liberals understand that the virus has had disproportionately negative impacts on poor people, particularly racialized poor people. 
in in the United States and and globally. But it seems to me that the that the left insight is somewhat distinct, and it's to see to see these systemic inequalities and the gutted public health care system and the just in time production, all of these things, the the entirety of the socio-ecological system as in fact fundamentally constitutive of the pandemic. Like there's no pandemic independent of these things. It's not a merely narrowly microbiological phenomenon. Yeah. I mean, definitely, you know, there wouldn't have been a pandemic if it wasn't due to the failures of the neoliberal governments to sort of contain the virus. It 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 is again, you know, <laughs> I get to repeat that very cliche phrase, we live in a society. It is never really just the biological agent that is at fault here because, you know, the crisis of the pandemic or the proportions it took is due to lack of ventilators, due to lack of uh, personal protective equipment, right? And due to lack of people's healthcare. Even as the U.S. government is sort of trying to get more PPE, more ventilators, and some states have secured those the problem is that in the indigenous reservations, there is there has been close to zero federal uh, help like going in there, right? And they're already underfunded, right? And so if it hits those areas, then the those people are definitely at so much higher risk than the rest of us who may have better access to uh, medical treatment and such like that. Um, a more local example is that Chelsea in which is a town in Massachusetts, very close to Boston, is the hardest hit town in Massachusetts. And historically, Chelsea has been, has, you know, borne the brunt of environmental injustice, like air pollution problems, asthma, high asthma rates in that area. It's an immigrant working class community. So you can't just ignore those socioeconomic determinants of health, because that's, if those towns or reservations or communities had the resources to deal with it, then it wouldn't be, the disease wouldn't have taken on such proportions. I think this brings us to the question of, of to what extent this is a problem of the uses to which science is put, to what extent it's a problem, a more fundamental problem about how science is done, or whether it's it's both, and, and that and whether, in fact, those two things are somehow interrelated. I think this is definitely interrelated. <laughs> I guess like it's hard for me to parse the use of scientific knowledge versus and also the production of scientific knowledge at this point, because when you see what uh, research is being funded comparatively to others, and a really good example is that, you know, environmental causes of cancer, that particular area gets a lot less financial um, uh, resources allocated to it compared to other causes, for example, there, and there's some debate in the field of what actually causes cancer, but let's say for now, the genetic causes of cancer, right? So when you look at that, one of them, the environmental causes is a more holistic approach to understanding how cancer can arise, right? Um, and whereas when you look at the genetic cause of cancer, that is entirely, it, it is a reductionist view, but it also sort of puts the onus on the individual. And a couple of years ago, there was like a, it's a very controversial paper called the bad luck paper uh, in the cancer field. Essentially, it was saying that some people are predisposed to getting cancer because of their genetic makeup, and it's just their bad luck at that point. 
so that's that's there and the other thing is like science being put to use again you know like i said data is data how you interpret it or how you use it or for whatever gains entirely depends on your like political and social factors here for example i'm i'm sure you might be familiar with 23 and me right so the uh, genetic sequencing company so when they started giving out tests and this was very interesting to see because their test does not gives you a um probability of how closely you might be related to some reference dna that they have of certain populations right it's it's an approximation at best right but people were using that to claim identities and it was really odd because you know the right wing so, some people like certain left liberal candidates for president yes, yeah <laughs> i mean and but like the other part was that right wing people were definitely uh using such data to uh promote eugenics like you know a more modern version of eugenicist ideas and one of the oddest or like one of the actually it was a little funny because they were doing this like gallon milk challenge because they were lactose tolerant and they believed that that made them the superior race which is i don't know like you can make whatever you want of that but um yeah of all so the, of all the hooks to try to hang white supremacy yeah. on um the capability to chug milk which first of all is a is a child's pursuit uh no offense to any listeners out there who are adults that drink full glasses of milk but I mean, <laughs> come on <laughs> i mean i i drink milk every day so okay uh, so no offense to you but i you know it, many of us you know put that habit away after our childhood just saying just saying i'm not right. calling you a white supremacist <laughs> <laughs> yeah and also there's like bigger questions of you know why is there so much money going to developing such expensive uh weaponry like where that could be funded for more social programs right obviously that's another big question like why is there funding towards uh you know the department of defense does fund a lot of variety of projects and some of them have given rise to more uh public use like for example the internet was essentially fund funded in back in the day by the dod but you know obviously the question still arises like what is the purpose and who is guiding it right like and this is going back to the dual nature of science like what levins wrote is like it's not just the production of knowledge but like who has control over the production of knowledge right and what sort of political ideology is guiding that production of knowledge and that determines a lot of outcomes of or use of scientific knowledge at this point science for the people activists in the early 70s in this article that was rejected by Science Magazine over the recommendations of reviewers and was a bit of a scandal at the time. They wrote, quote, It is no accident that two of the most advanced monopolistic formations, advanced both in their utilization and support of science and in the efficiency and sophistication of their internal organization, are Bell Telephone and IBM. They represent to capitalist planners the wave of the future, the integration of scientific knowledge, management technique, and capital, which guarantees the long-run viability of the capitalist order. They also represent industries which are key to the servicing and rationalizing of the basic industries, as well as to the maintenance of the international domination of U.S. capital. Today, is it similarly no accident that we see Amazon, Google and Apple in this incredibly dominant position and in a dominant position in, in also familiar ways. Google chairman Eric Schmidt now sits on two advisory committees 
advising the Department of Defense. How does your analysis of the role of science within present day American capitalist political economy compare to that advanced by science for the people's original cohort? Is it is is it formally basically the same? Is it just kind of the content that has changed or is the content not really substantively changed either? Yeah, I think it's it's pretty much remained the same because, you know, in from the 70s to now, we are actually we have actually seen much more entrenchment of capital and scientists sort of falling in line with it. Because, like I said, you know, the steady new liberalization of scientific uh, research has brought us here today. Right. So there's not a lot of dissent among the ranks. And in particular, at least in the biomedical sciences, besides the obvious targets of eugenics, um, there's really not been much outcry against um, what is taking place or how the science is being used. We, uh, because you know, biomedical research has always been well-funded and a lot of uh, researchers have personally profited from it. I'm just going to keep this short, but like you know, the case of Carlo Croci, who's a professor out in Ohio, who basically is a cancer researcher, but like has used a lot of the grant money for his own uh, private interests and stuff. Um, New York Times did a really good exposure on him, expose on him. But I think, but also I feel like while like you know top level Google, Amazon employees or like the uh, the executives have sided with the um, status quo, I think it sort of falls onto the the quote-unquote rank-and-file workers, either in tech or in scientific research, because you also see the same thing in grad student organizing to push back against uh, against such like marriages between the, the leaders of the scientific enterprise or the tech enterprise and then the political uh, leaders. In terms of concretely what left science looks like, Levins and his radical science colleague Richard Lewontin made an argument for what they called dialectical biology, which argued that biology itself had to be reimagined through Marxist dialectics. To what extent is Marxism a way to understand science and how its findings are are deployed within an unequal and fundamentally politicized world? And to what extent can Marxism more fundamentally change how science is done. And in terms of what Marxist science might look like, how does the sort of dialectical biology that Levins and Lewontin argue for, how does that differ from what we saw in the Soviet Union, where where dogma was applied in a really crude way to evolutionary biology, creating this just absurdly unscientific theory of, of, of Lysenkoism? Uh, like I said before, Levins was like a very foresight, like a man with a lot of foresight, right? And I think what Levins and Luantine advocated, the dialectical biology and Marxism can help on 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 both the natures of science that he describes in Dual Nature of Science. One is the theoretical aspect and the other one is the practical one, right? So the theoretical aspect is something that's, that's not only just Marxist, but also naturalists independently of the Marxists have also come to the same conclusions. So when Engels... Uh, wrote the dialectics of um, nature, he laid down three laws. And, and without going too much into them, what basically what the three laws were saying is that one is that nature cannot be, is anti, like the law of, against reductionism, how the, the environment and the organism are act upon each other. And thirdly is like how, how they evolve together. Like, so the theory of change, right? And this is the biological interpretation or Levinson and Luantin's interpretation of 
Engels's um, dialectical laws, right? The interesting part is that Ernst Meyer, who is a um, evolutionary biologist and a theorist, he he was asked once, like, are you a Marxist? And he said, no, I, I don't identify as a Marxist. And then he wrote this essay called The Roots of Dialectical Materialism in the 70s, saying how naturalists themselves have come to the same conclusion over years of studying the environment, is that the environment, uh, the organism and the environment interact together and change together, and the environment cannot be reduced to a single part, right? Because it it removes all sorts of emergent properties from the evolutionary aspect, from the physiological aspect. And these are all detailed in the dialectical biology book that Levins and Nuantin write. So that, that was very interesting because, you know, uh, John Bellamy Foster has a really good book called Marxist Ecology. And uh, for a long time, he argues that Western Marxists did not take into account Marx's ecological writings because they did not see a value for dialectics of nature uh, by Engels, right? However, when you go back to what Marx actually worked on, he had a thesis on uh, on a Greek philosopher called Epicurus, and Epicurus had a particular materialism that he advocated. So Epicurean materialism includes chance as an ontological agent. And this is very key to understanding what went wrong in the Soviet Union's uh, Soviet science and also why Marxism is still applicable for modern day biology. And I'll, let me say a little bit about Soviet science before I move to like more modern day biology, which is proving that, uh, you know, like the cliche that Marx is right, right? So um, <laughs> it's definitely a cliche on this podcast. <laughs> Continue. <laughs> All right, guess so for the hundredth time, Marx is right. Um, yeah. So surprise. <laughs> yeah. So in the Soviet Union, what happened was Lysenko, who was an agricultural agrarian, right, and he had this idea that the environment was the main agent of change of of heredity and so if you could change the envi- if you could put an organism in an environment and you change the environment that will result in the desired change in the organism itself i think one experiment he tried to do was uh grow seeds uh over time in frozen soil so that the seeds would just be able to survive the winter and of course this is not going to work because that's not how it works even in dialectics, this is a you know this is a rejection of dialectics because in dialectics you have the organism and the environment co-determine each other. They interact on each other. So neither of them are the passive agents. They're both active agents working on each other. And this was the problem. The dogmatic Marxism in Soviet science was entirely based on a mechanistic interpretation of materialism rather than which excluded chance as an ontological agent and also the idea that you know both the organism and the environment interact, uh, co-determine each other. And that was the main problem. Moving forward, this was, you know, Lysenkoism and its failures has been propped up against Marxist biology for like a long time now. And it sort of kind of, you know, destroyed the um, the tradition that was organismal biological tradition that was growing out of uh, Marxist biology at that time. You know, there were Western Marxists, like scientists like J.D. Bernal and J.B.S. Haldane, who were very vocal about the role of Marxism in uh, describing biology, even Joseph Needham, right? So Joseph Needham was actually a Christian uh, scientist. And he believed that Marxism, uh, besides being the correct method for studying science, could also affect the rest of your life, except religion. So he didn't really, you know, give uh, <laughs> give out much space on that. One, ca- one caveat. Yeah, just one caveat. <laughs> but anyway, the point I'm trying to make is that, and that sort of killed it, right? And 
and and after Lysenkoism was shot down, there was other political uh, aspects that came in and changes in understanding of biology. And, you know, the focus slowly shifted to genetics. And then once the molecular revolution happened, which is the, you know, when Watson and Crick discovered the structure of DNA, everything just turned to molecular biology, right? And then a lot of the work that even pre-Soviet science developmental biologists in Germany had done, or even continuing through this tradition of like an organismal biology, which supported Marxism or Marxist ideas like, you know, Ernst Mayer shows, uh, those kind of got slowly lost. And added to that was the steady entrenchment of uh, bourgeois philosophy in both academic research and also the scientific knowledge of uh, the production of scientific knowledge. And I think this is the other part, right? So there is no praxis without theory and vice versa. So one thing is that oftentimes, like there is a class analysis that is missing from scientists or the work that they do, right? So earlier I had talked about, or, you know, I had talked a little bit about proletarianization of the scientists themselves, right? So now they're a workforce. So when you're, uh, when you become workers, you need to have an analysis of how your labor is being used or expropriated by capitalist interest, right? So when you work in a university setting or if you work in biotech as a worker, you are the one who's getting squeezed, right? Grad students, that's why grad students are unionizing. Tenured faculty are also trying to unionize. For example, in my uh, alma mater, uh, Tufts University, tenured faculty do try to unionize because the university was trying to um, cut faculty salaries while you know there's been an administrative bloat in universities, which is like a pretty common trend as far as I understand. So what I'm trying to say is that, you know, this Marxist analysis is necessary for one to, for the theoretical aspect of understanding how biology actually works, going back to the whole idea of like interconnectedness. And on the other hand, the practice of science needs to be rooted in, in a class analysis because it needs to be understood like who the science is meant for and two, how you're working on it and three, who has control over it, right? Who has control over the production process? Is it, you know, if the money is coming from taxpayers through a government agency, then it should be the everyday taxpayer who should be in control of the production process, right? I mean, that's like something I suppose not very well talked about in academia because there's, a, there's the lack of the class analysis. And I think part of it is because, again, like I said, like scientists do tend to be removed a little bit from society in general, but they're still living it's like living separate lives, like in the lab, you're one, and when you exit the lab, you're part of another reality. Yeah, so so when you look at both of these aspects, again, you know, Marxism sort of ties the two together that you need to have the theoretical aspect as well as the practical aspect of uh, doing science. And in specifically in terms of biology, I did want to mention more modern biology is um, there's this idea of what is called a holobiont. Um, so the developmental biologist Scott Gilbert, he works at Swarthmore, and he proposed this idea that uh, a human body is not just human cells. A human body also contains bacteria inside and outside, right? So you have the bacteria in your gut, you have bacteria in your skin, and actually the number of bacterial cells in your body outnumbers your own cells, right? So, and these are sometimes these bacterial populations are inherited from your parents. They are changed by where you live, where you what you eat. Right. So it's a it's a dynamic environment like you are like an organism is a walking ecosystem. So the best way to describe this organism is by calling it a holobiont. And it's uh, it's a fascinating idea because 
it kind of shows like how much you're embedded in the environment rather than being isolated from the environment. What reductionist biology says is that, you know, organisms can be studied in isolation and causality can be constructed from low level to high level just by studying particular molecules to particular cells to particular tissues, right? So, and without taking into account the whole picture. Is it fair to say that this marginalization of Marxist science in particular and just more systematic science, more ecological science in general, that that has really helped the consolidation of the reductionist science that we that we know as establishment science, particularly genetic reductionism? Yeah, definitely. A big thing was the Human Genome Project, right? So once the human genome was sequenced, and so many things were promised. And that happened in 2001. And 19 years later, we have learned a lot about DNA, but we still haven't, cured, quote unquote, cured cancer, right? We still haven't cured diabetes, uh, heart diseases. We, yes, we have developed better drugs for them, but none of the promises that were made at the onset of Human Genome Project, we, have, we are there. So the, the the sidelining of Marxism, you know, the thing is like, it's it's not just like at the level of just of, of the theory, but it's also the practice of it, right? So again, like I said, it's like the, the, the new liberalization of the process that resulted, that, that, is, that is, you know, in, in, uh, in concordance with a, a reductionist philosophy, right? So these two, these two things actually go together. So uh, like a holistic or like an organismic view of biology is not compatible with with the um, the neoliberal program and what Christopher Caldwell says, the bourgeois philosophy, right? So it, you see it in society and you also see it within the theoretical aspects of biology as well. So yeah, it's uh, the genetic reductionism is definitely a product of um, of the sidelining of uh, of Marxism and not just Marxism because you know, like I said, the the biologists also had an independent strain of thought that agreed with Marx or Engels's dialectics of nature, but like that overall holistic view. So we tend to kind of counterpose reactionary politics and liberalism, but does what you're saying mean that that neoliberalism then is also complicit in these recurrent efforts to establish race as a biological category and to then to to use those categories to explain differences and create hierarchies between or legitimate hierarchies between so-called races? Oh yeah, definitely. There's no doubt about that because you know, I guess like what I'm trying to say is that the center of of, of a new liberalism, as far as I understand, and it is it is the individual, right? And uh, everywhere you see, it's like it's, it's the individual is essentially determined by its uh, genetics. And so there's like so much genocentrism. Like I said, like the popularity of 23andMe uh, shows something, right? Like people want to know who they are, and for a long time they've been told that DNA is our blueprint, DNA is the code, and you are who your DNA says it is. Yeah, sure. Some people will admit that, yeah, you know, environment affects your growth and blah, blah, blah. And so the whole debate over nature versus nurture still goes on is because of neoliberalization and of the neoliberalism, because that still cannot comprehend that nature and nurture can exist together. It has to be like nature versus nurture. So we've seen how the the politics of science allow us to, this analysis allows us to sort of connect the dots between gene-centric view in the academy in the academy and white nationalists chugging milk on on YouTube or wherever they they do it but the, the the politics of science obviously shapes gender politics too you know with gender critical turfs mm-hmm. who have embraced biology as determinant of of womanhood 
and then we have incels who are obsessed with jawlines <clears throat> as determinative of which men get to have tons of sex and which get to have no sex at all. Why is the right, who, who which we've discussed earlier in this interview as this force that's attacking science, attacking climate science, attacking, spreading, you know, COVID misinformation. Why is the right always reaching for biological determinism? And what does that say about this question we've been discussing about about the problems with reifying science? Wow, yeah, that's a, that's a big question. I think, you know, it's because biology is meant to provide an answer for human nature. And I think the right is very determined to prove that they're, they're very determined to prove by any manner that they're innately better than the rest of us, right? So, so like the the mainstream ideas of biology appeal to them because they see there a way to like a like an unchangeable evidence that yes, we have these genetic markers, we have these. Um, jaw lines or like physiological parameters that makes us better. And obviously evolutionary psychology played a huge role in shaping such ideas, which is like evolutionary psychology did a lot of damage to society, to be honest. But also, you know, you, you see the remnants of that trying to find answers to complex behavioral questions within the genetic uh, makeup, right? So there was the quest for the gay gene at some point, for example. As far as gender goes, it's interesting because the way it, and it, this is where also science communication, like I, I really feel like science media, media, the way the media portrays science has just done again, a lot of damage without really parsing the subtleties is that the, the whole concept of like estrogen being the women's hormone and testosterone being the male hormone did do like, you know, they create these binaries and binaries are easy to grasp and use. Whereas, you know, subtleties take a lot more, like, I mean, I guess like what I'm trying to say is that there's not a lot of room for nuance in, in the arguments that you, that take place in social media or in the larger mainstream media, right? So, and it's, uh, it's weird because you have estrogen in, in men and testosterone in women too. So like, there's really no reason why one should be called the male hormone and the other female hormone. I just, that's, that's really not the point here. And and gender, and I think this is part of it, is that you know gender and sex are different. And I think there's a lot more well-versed people than me to talk about this. But just want to point out that just your chromosomal makeup shouldn't determine your gender, which is a social category. And also race is also like a social category. It's not a biological category. The biological differences you see between race shouldn't mean that you they should be treated differently. And in most cases, differently means inferior, at least in like this white supremacist culture. But that, that, that you should be able to understand the differences and provide or like sort of treat them like, you know, according to their needs, right? For example, uh, black women are more susceptible to getting uh, a more aggressive form of breast cancer uh, compared to white women, right? So this is a biological difference between uh, the two races. But that doesn't mean that black women should be without treatment, which is the case. A lot of the times black women receive a lot less treatment or for breast cancer, even within the same income group. So it's not necessarily just about class. It's also about race, right? So, But it also doesn't mean that biological race is is real because that's not an attribute of, of, of blackness. I don't specifically know about the breast cancer right. case, but in terms of, say, sickle cell anemia, which is associated with 
black people associating it with black people as a as a product of uh, of blackness which is not a biological category but a social category also obscures the fact that people from various parts of the middle east and the mediterranean also have a predisposition to sickle cell anemia right no that's exactly it like it doesn't it shouldn't mean that and also the reason is you know when you are a black person in the us your your environment is very different from the environment of a white person. And I think Levin sort of touches it on his uh, article that you mentioned is that, again, but like, is that socioeconomic status or they leave mark on your physiology. So your entire history, right? Your entire upbringing, your physiology is shaped not just by your biology, but also your environment and your your class status, your, your uh, the whole list of variables that are not biological, right? So biology just isn't simply biology or it's not reductionist because it's tied in with your environment, which is determined by politics and um, society. So yeah, I mean, you know, this this social categories that are superimposed on biological evidence is is a sort of weaponization of like facts or like data, right? And, and the right is very much, even though they are anti-vaxxers, even though they spread misinformation for COVID for their political gains, they are using same scientific evidence or data using their political ideology to make political and social gains. So this is, again, you know, sort of like going full circle into like the relation between the, on, on the dual nature of science, right? And liberal versus radical critiques of science and all of that. How do you think about the questions around technology's role in society and political economy, because that's a major subject of, of of debate within the left, including when it comes to climate with the issue of geoengineering. On the one hand, I think that geoengineering is rightfully critiqued as a techno fix that, that could function to dodge the core question with climate, which is eliminating fossil fuel, stop burning fossil fuels. And and you could argue that in many ways that that's already the ideological function that geoengineering performs now is to obscure the, the fundamentals of the debate. But on the other hand, even if we abolished burning fossil fuels and hell, capitalism tomorrow, uh, which doesn't which doesn't seem so likely, unfortunately. But even if we did, it seems to me that we could benefit from a publicly owned carbon sucker if such a thing were possible, because there's just too much. There's already too much carbon in the atmosphere, and global warming is happening right now. So, what my question is: What do you make of this debate? And can we have a critique of Silicon Valley techno fixes the, and the the politics and economics of those, while also recognizing the liberatory potential? of technology because after all a vaccine is in a sense a techno fix too if we accept this kind of systemic ecological political economic framework for analyzing disease emergence first of all i want to say that science for the people has a very um, has an issue dedicated to geoengineering that is really very informative and what i'm about to tell you is like you know a lot better detailed there by other experts uh quote-unquote experts <laughs> I think, Dan, actually, you sort of bought, like, in your question, I want to highlight a couple of things. Is One is publicly owned carbon sucker, right? And I think the key there is the publicly owned, right? Majority of, of the geoengineering projects, such as solar radiation management or carbon capture and sequestration, 
are currently done by private interests, right? And so then the question always becomes, who is this technology for? Who is it going to benefit, right? You can't, and this is like a big deal in the climate movement itself, like when we are pushing for renewables with the understanding that this boost in renewable production, solar panels or windmills, they require these minerals that need to be mined from the global south, right? So again, is this mining happening in a way that like with solidarity with the labor that's working in the mines with, you know, with respect to uh, the ecological damage it's causing, right? Like, are we doing this with cognizance of that? And then what are the reparations, right? And what is, is this technology going to be me made free for the, the global south, right? Because of... Uh, centuries of colonialism that the global north has done to extract, you know, resources from the global south, right? So it's not necessarily just a question of like, do we need this or not? It's about like, yes, I am. I personally am tech agnostic. I think to some extent we need to be able to use all the uh, options we have, but we have to be. We have to keep in mind that there are planetary limits, and I think this is like a big rift in the climate left is that a certain sect believes that we there shouldn't be any planetary limits. Like we should just be able to mine asteroids. Um, <laughs> I mean, sure. Yeah, that sounds like a pretty great idea. But are you going to let Tesla do it? Or are you going to do like a centrally planned economy throughout the world, um, which can do it by itself? And I mean, you know, if you have read King Stanley Robinson's Mars Trilogy, then you know that the corporations are definitely going to try that first and they have the resources to do that. But also, I think, you know, recognizing planetary limits is not, necessarily and this is where it really bothers me because we uh you know not we but like that aspect of what is known as degrowth movement right so degrowthers and there's definitely the extreme part of degrowth which is more anarcho-primitivist where like okay let's just go back to the lands live in small communities and blah 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 but and that has some like, some eco-fascist overtones but also like what would it mean to live within the planetary limits right how do we reimagine a world where you can still live and not have to, you know, call for population control or like not call for population control at all because the effects are, you know, obviously going to fall on non-white communities, which historically has been the case and still be able to avert the climate crisis, right? And I think there's a lot of fixes within not just techno, but like also the the whole question of like, what are we producing? What Who are we producing these for? And is this really necessary? Like how the economy is centered, right? And then the concepts of like, what technology is being used, like instead of, there's technology out there, like for example, high-speed rail could easily replace car culture, which would like cut a lot of the emissions, right? So it's not just like talking about, oh, we just got to build this new technological carbon capture project, right? I mean, obviously you can talk about rewilding the earth, right? So plant more trees, which are like natural carbon sequestering, uh, quote-unquote machines. But there's not a lot of interest in that because that would mean that you have to, coming to terms with the current consumptive behavior that we are that we we operate within like you know in the in the in the capitalist society so i guess my question then would be like you know is the left necessarily just trying to you know in some way greenwash capitalism with techno fixes or are we actually going to like reckon with our uh behavior of how we interact with the environment right and i think if you understand biology or if you understand your relationship with uh, the environment in a dialectical manner, then I don't think you can just be like, okay, so we can just do whatever the hell we are doing, but let's just invent or put money into R&D for some technology that can allow us to keep doing whatever we're doing, right? And 
in terms of Silicon Valley, that's like, you know, a lot of those people are dumping a lot of money into these geoengineering projects. And I understand it. Like, you know, there's, we have to be able to. They're doing that. They're, they're revealingly doing that and trying to escape the planet. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. I mean, they're like, okay, so this is fucked. Let's just like fly away to Mars. Right. So our experiment's over or something like that. But I mean, that's the thing. I think they exist on a different material reality from the rest of us, right? So, and I think Ajay Singh Chowdhury wrote really good article on this. Like there is no collective we in this climate movement, right? So William Nordhaus can say, okay, yeah, four degrees Celsius rise is acceptable and a part of humanity will survive. But that means that he and the elites are willing to risk or like basically put to death millions of people just so that they don't have to change anything or they don't have to restructure the economy. Wh- which is like the, precisely the same calculus that we see right now with COVID. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I want to finish by talking about science worker organizing and ask what science worker organizing looks like today. Who are you trying to organize and to what end? And in in what ways is that a continuation of what the original science for the people was trying to do and and to what extent is it is it somewhat different so i um i understand from the older uh, the past science for the people movements is that they they were more of like an anti-war uh movement and um there wasn't a lot of conscious worker unionization efforts from what i understand they did they, there was some efforts to unionize uh scientists but it didn't really go very far i think like in the in britain um, there was an uh, International Academic Workers Union, or I forget the abbreviation for it, but Steve and Hillary Rose uh, writes about that. But today in America, like I think the center point of sci- like Science for the People's organizing is grad- helping graduate students organize. And I can speak a little bit about it in Boston, but also you see the UC system, right? Most And these are not, you know, these are not necessarily driven by Science for the People. It's just like a it's a realization by graduate students themselves about how their labor is being exploited. And scientists, for the most part, it, it is odd that we don't have solidarity with our counterparts in humanities or social sciences. It just boggles my mind because when I was in graduate school in, in between 2013 to 2019, in, in the beginning, there was so much excitement because, you know, the NLR, the National Labor Relations Board had overturned this decision that graduate students are not workers. And suddenly graduate students were realizing there was like a building of class consciousness. And like there was a lot of organizing efforts happening in Northeastern, at, at Tufts University, at um, Harvard. And these are still continuing. But a lot of the time, you know, they have faced a lot of difficulties, but there was so much excitement at that time to realize that we are all in solidarity with each other. And that solidarity also did not limit themselves to students. It spread to staff who were organizing, for example, the dining hall staff or the janitor, the custodial staff who were uh, organizing for unions or demanding better work environments and stuff. And I think that was so critical because it really showed that was like the, like for me, the 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 realization. Yeah, this is like people are finally realizing that there is uh, there's power in a union and that we are all workers, right? Like our labor is being exploited and not just in some lofty ideals of science, but for like profiteering purposes by the uh, by the institutions where we work, right? So there's that, that I feel like that's the current science for the people worker uh, movement. Yeah, so, so I, I, I can only uh, speak as far as that. In the original science for the people, I've read that the 
a core organizing challenge was extending the project beyond the academy and into industry. But what I've heard from a lot of grad student organizers over the years is that science PhD students are often among the hardest to organize. What, what accounts for this divide between science grad students and and those who are in the humanities or social sciences um, and this perception that science grad students are are more conservative or more bought into the status quo and and how might that be overcome yeah i think that's uh, that what you just described is it, it's definitely true i personally as a science uh, phd student can attest to that because <laughs> in my conversations with my colleagues or like my cohort there was really no First, there was no recognition of like a class difference. And also there was, you know, the the makeup of science uh, PhDs usually are definitely more um, aligned with the status quo and uh, they're financially more comfortable considering the amount of funding we get in a lot of schools. Like in our in my school, we didn't have to teach. So there was really no impetus for organizing on common grounds. It was basically just like, oh, we're getting paid well. We don't have to teach students. So we can just do our research, right? And I think that's like the mantra, the individualist new liberal mantra that's been like drilled into your head is that you just need to work on yourself. And I think it's, it's, it might be Eric Olin, right? Who described this as like contradictory class positions, right? And also I think there, although it's 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 got a lot of different names, but I think I personally would say it's like the professional managerial class kind of situation here where your class interests like a more aligned with, with the status quo rather than uh your fellow workers who are in a in a less financially comfortable position right so i don't i think you know to overcome this contradictory class position there has to be other there has to be other aspects rather than just funding and i think you know there has to be a cultivation of uh, solidarity a cultivation of uh of class consciousness within science PhDs. And and part of it comes also from like understanding what your science is being used for, right? So in, in the recent times, there's been this whole rise in the use of PhD, right? As a as a critical skill, right? So right now PhDs are being marketed as, um, as like having learned the skill of critical thinking, as having learned the uh, skill of critical reading or comprehension or time management or whatever it is that is applicable for a wide variety of jobs. And this is happening because the academic job market is, for even for science PhDs, is like drying up, right? So we, when I was in grad school, we were given courses or like we were given workshops on how to market yourself as to uh, non-academic jobs or like, like even non-research jobs. And if you look at the rise of uh, consulting companies in biotech in, in the city of Boston in the last five years, you'll see that so many, there's just been such a boom of consulting, biotech consulting. And a lot of, even my cohort, I think a handful of them went into actual industry or academic research. And majority of them went into like non-research related jobs as PhDs. So there's obviously the allure of like a science PhD to have for upward mobility, easier upward mobility compared to humanities and social sciences. And I think. And there's a deeper and there's a deeper history there as well. I don't know if you've uh, read the book, Don't Blame Us. It's a history of the Route 128 suburbs. I by, actually by Lily Geismer, a historian. It's an excellent book. And it's about the rise of, of suburban new democratic politics in Boston's Route 128 suburbs, it, which is, for those listeners who don't know, a tech hub. And I've also done an interview with Lily Geismer for those who want to find it in the archives. But tech workers are a big part of the story. 
And she writes that while they played a big role, an important role in the area's anti-war movement and other progressive fights, that they were also kind of skeptical and even hostile to organized labor and that they went on to form a key constituency behind the rise of Atari Democrats like Michael Dukakis and, and new Democrats like like Bill Clinton. Yeah. So uh, I am, like I said, I'm not familiar with that work, but, you know, when on the talk of tech workers, Boston is still a big tech hub, right? And it's like now a biotech hub, but there's also other tech companies here. And one one thing that happened was um, uh, like, I think last year, there was a big walkout of the of the online furniture retail company, right? I, yeah, but it was the walkout resisting their uh, collaboration with ICE, right? Yes, yes. They were providing beds for ICE detention centers. And actually, one of the or- main organizers of that walkout was a Boston Democratic Socialist of America member who sort of organized the the workers to, you know, leading the work, uh, walkout, right? And there was a lot of graduate students, both from science uh, and non-science fields there, particularly Science for the People's local chapters did participate in it. So there's definitely, you know, a lot of like current Science for the People efforts, like especially, I mean, even beyond Science for the People efforts, like, like just in general, graduate student organizing or faculty, uh, adjunct faculty organizing is also a big thing. So all of that kind of overlaps or could be considered as a part of like a broader movement in in, in uh, or like worker mobilization in the technology field in general, right? Which which happened with the um, which we are seeing pushing back against collaboration with ICE or even with the Pentagon, like Google's Project Maven. There was like a big walkout protest over that, and also in Microsoft too. My last question is is about tech worker organizing, which, as you mentioned resistance to involvement in immigration enforcement, its military work, sexual harassment on the job. And Ben Tarnoff wrote about this in a recent essay for Logic, a really great lengthy essay on tech worker organizing. And he writes about how many tech workers have a contradictory class position with an orientation to both the working class and the bourgeoisie simultaneously in different contradictory ways. Tech workers, he writes, are, quote, members of the middle layers who have the potential to be either friends or enemies of a working class led socialist movement. By virtue of their position between labor and capital, they inhabit what Eric Owen Wright famously called contradictory class locations. Their class condition is a combination of bourgeois and proletarian elements, which means they are pulled in two directions. They can focus on the ways in which they are bourgeois and identify with the capitalist class, or they can focus on the ways in which they are proletarian and forge alliances with the working class. The tech worker movement offers a fascinating illustration of many members of the middle layers coming to see themselves as workers. My last question is, with that in mind, what does the recent wave of tech worker organizing reveal about the class position and complicated political potential of science workers in particular, as I guess part of some have called the professional managerial class in general. It, it's also part of it is what's like uh, Gabriel Winnett calls chronopolitics. Like it also depends on age. One thing is that there's an increasing realization that whatever the current system is, whether you identify as a socialist or a social democrat or, you know, liberal, you understand that there's something is not working, right? And this this is being 
so much more exacerbated by the pandemic situation and like the way it's being handled and the disparate eff effects on different communities, right? And this is all very publicly uh, being exposed, right? So the, the hope there is that it will lead to some form of radicalization where, where scientists who occupy contradictory class um, locations, like you mentioned, will advocate for a more radical political program rather than just saying we should you know, tone it down or something like that. And I think uh, I'm, I guess I'm pretty optimistic because I <laughs> just for whatever reason, but um, I do hope that it turns out to be that way. And, you know, when I talk to uh, emerging scientists, right, like, or uh, early career scientists, they all understand that the bottleneck that we're living in, like academic jobs are drying up. There's not a lot of security in the future, even if you're a scientist, right? Like, and when you look at the, how capitalism moves through boom and bust cycles, the biotech boom is going to come to an end, right? And the consulting boom is going to come to an end. So all of this needs to become more mainstream conversation is like, do we realize where we are headed? And of course, the climate crisis is like in the, is obviously looming in the background, right? So there is hope, you know, that this, um, this moment can be used for a radical transformation and the way you use it it depends on like how much you uh, how much energy you put into like organizing and um i think that that is going to be very key well one quick follow-up yeah is that the power the power of the tech monopolies appears to only be growing stronger and stronger amid the current crisis so how do tech workers as science workers within the most powerful and valuable countries in the world, what role can their organizing play in supporting a broader working class-led movement further down the supply chain? I'm thinking both in terms of tech manufacturing workers in places like Shenzhen, but also like retail in, in the U.S. This is a they're not just workers with a contradictory class location, but they're workers with a contradictory class location within companies that effectively also have massive working classes. I think, uh, so if I remember correctly, you know, there's there's a large portion of these tech monopolies that operate as sub, as con, as contract uh, workers, right? So they, they do not get the the benefits of a full-time employee. And I think one of the one of the greatest things that was happening based on Ben Turnoff's article is that he writes about how the full-time workers were also interacting with the contract workers in in terms of going on strike, right? So obviously when there's a strike, the first thing is like don't be a scam. Don't cross the picket line, right? So I think that that sense of solidarity needs to exist between the the uh, the tech workers on both sides. And also the other part is the, and, and a good example would be like Uber and Lyft, right? So the gig economy has created this uh, this endless supply of labor for these companies, but also it is it is their critically like, you know, it is their critical point. And I think there's a, another really good essay in Logic about this is that because the companies are so reliant on this labor force, that if the labor force can organize against the companies, that essentially, you know, will bring them down to their knees. And I think that sort of, uh, that that power, even if we can string together these separate movements together somehow, and it, through like just the general understanding that we are that this company is screwing everybody, 
right? Except for the top paying executive, right? The the Uber driver or like even the retail worker who works at uh, at a restaurant where a driver is picking up food for Grubhub or Uber Eats, and the guy on the developer back end understands that we are putting these people at risk for the profit of the company, not the restaurant, not the guy who's making the delivery, not even the developer who's probably, you know, and based on a contract, like he's just trying to maintain his job security at this point without even proper benefits. And this is, this precarity is like what ties us together. And that could be used to cultivate a solidarity across supply chains, like across like contradictory class positions, because ultimately, you know, the goal for the corporation is to like send, like, you know, maximize profit at the highest level. And at the cost of the labor force. Well, Nafisa San, thank you very, very much. Oh, thank you. This is such a pleasure. Nafisa San is a postdoctoral researcher at Tufts University working on brain tumors and an organizer with the Boston chapters of DSA and Science for the People. Thank you for listening to The Dig from Jacobin Magazine. As Marx once said after noting that nature is man's inorganic body, that is to say, nature is so far as it is not the human body. Man lives from nature, and he must maintain a continuing dialogue with it if he is not to die. To say that man's physical and mental life is linked to nature simply means that nature is linked to itself, for man is a part of nature. While other podcasts have only interpreted the world in various ways, our point is to change it. We are posting new episodes every week. The Dig was produced by Alex Lewis, music by Jeffrey Brodsky. Our communications coordinators are Julia Rock and Zachary Nin. Our senior advisor is Thea Riofrancos. Check out our vast archives at thedigradio.com. Follow us on Twitter at The Dig Radio, and please do find us wherever you get podcasts and subscribe. If it is on iTunes, you can also leave us a glowing review. Those reviews help introduce us to new listeners, but what really does that is telling your friends about the show. Please do make propaganda for us. And please do find us at patreon.com slash the dig and make a monthly contribution to keep this operation up and running strong. Even a few bucks is a big help. Thank you.